Welcome to The Q Word, a podcast about the tips, trends, and taboos of emergency nursing, where we pull the hospital curtain back on issues that emergency nurses and their patients often think about but seldom talk about. You found the Q Word Podcast. Nurses can learn a lot from case studies, but they run the risk of being pretty snoozy. Not these three. Check out these bizarre case studies and the ER lessons that we learn from them. Now, Nisa originally presented this lecture live at the Southeastern Seaboard Symposium in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. If you're looking for a great regional emergency nursing conference, we recommend you go to this one. So, enjoy this live recording of The Chef Without a Tongue, 11 Blue Men, and the pitcher who struck out Murderer's Row. So I want to start by introducing you to the chef. This is Grant Ackett. He grew up in a family whose love language was food. And so when they wanted to express love to one another, they cooked for each other, they fed each other. And you would think he was Southern, but he was actually from Michigan. His parents owned a restaurant, so he grew up working in the restaurant, cooking in the restaurant, serving in the restaurant. And so when he graduated from high school, he continued that, and he went to New York City to the Culinary Institute in New York. He did very well there, was a top student. And when he graduated, he set his sights to the highest. He wanted to work at the best restaurant in the United States. And at that time, and still arguably at this time, it was the French Laundry in Napa, California, but, uh, owned and run by Chef Thomas Keller. And so he wrote to Chef Keller and said, I'm Grant Ackett, I wanna work for you, I will do anything. I will sweep floors, I will wash dishes, I will bust tables. And the next day, he wrote a letter to Thomas Keller and he said, I'm Grant Ackett, I wanna work for you, I will do anything, I will sweep floors, I will bust tables, I will wash dishes. And the next day, and the next day, and the next day. And this was back in the day in the 90s where you wrote letters and put a stamp on them and put them in the mail. And by the time Chef Keller got the 14th letter in a row, he called Grant and said, if you will stop writing me letters, I will hire you. But you will sweep floors and you will bust tables and you will wash dishes. And he accepted it and said, I'm coming. And he moved to California and was hired at the French Laundry, number one restaurant in America. And he was a top employee. And he worked really hard, and he worked his way up in the ranks, and he learned everything he could from Thomas Keller. And he was a very good cook and learned to become, was learning to become a very good chef. Um, but Grant has this sense of humor, and he, about food even. And he has this um, idea that food should sometimes be a joke, sometimes be a little bit nostalgic, maybe have a pun or some irony to it. He liked to experiment with science and food. He liked to deconstruct food. And he was starting to fall into the trend of what would later become known as molecular gastronomy, although he would probably cringe at me saying that right now. And it was very different than what was happening at the French Laundry and that what Thomas Keller was doing. And so their, their paths sort of started to diverge. And there came a point where it was time for him to leave the French Laundry and branch out on his own. And so under Chef Keller's blessing and on very good terms, he moved to Chicago and got hired on as the executive chef at a restaurant called Trio. And under his leadership, Trio became very, very popular. And he was a really good chef and people ate really delicious food at Trio. But it still wasn't enough, and it still wasn't his vision. And so after many years at Trio, he wanted his own place. He wanted to do his own thing. He wanted full creative license with food and environment and presentation, all of it. And so he found an investor who became his business partner and also, luckily for him, his best friend, Nick Kakonis. And they opened a restaurant called Alinea. And Alinea means the beginning of a new train of thought. And this is the food that they created at Alinea. It's a little bit deconstructed, a little bit sciencey. This is called crab and coconut with 10 different garnishes. And this is clear pumpkin pie. 
So remember I said he likes to take nostalgic things and sort of turn them on their ear and maybe make it ironic or fun or punny. So this is your beautiful basic pumpkin pie that is part of every Thanksgiving holiday. But the most iconic part of the pumpkin pie, that beautiful orange color, he's evaporated it. Everything else stays the same, tastes the same, smells the same, but he takes away the orangeness of it. This is what he does. You can still see the beautiful crust. In fact, that's sort of what he's featuring by clearing out the, uh, the fruit part. You can see how beautifully flaky the crust is on that pumpkin pie, clear pumpkin pie. This one is called peanut butter and jelly. And this is one grape still on the stem resting in a peanut puree and wrapped in a fluffy brioche. So this is the very upscale version of a peanut butter and jelly. What is more home uh, than that? And you're getting one bite, but that's okay because your meal is gonna be 14 courses and I promise you will be full by the end. And also I wanted to point out, I don't know if you can see the little metal sort of half dish, half utensil that it is on. Every dish that he creates, he thinks of a very creative and artistic way to display it and hires artists and artisans to make them. So this is not just a regular fork, this is a piece of artwork because he wants it to be as much about the visual experience as the um, taste. This is lamb 86 because you're gonna get a beautiful piece of lamb and 86 different garnishes. So potentially 86 different bites. And if you mix two of the garnishes, exponential amounts of taste that you get to decide at the table. So some of the things that you see up there are lemon, star anise, bay leaf, uh, and then mint, which is traditional sometimes with uh, lamb. And again, you can see the beautiful presentation of it. It's like a canvas piece of artwork. He's very famous for this one. And then this is the other one that he's super famous for. And this is called taffy apple balloon. And so this is a piece of apple taffy that he fills with helium. And that's him right there, filling it, filling it with helium. It is attached on a fruit leather string, and at the bottom it's held onto your table by a little metal needle. And it come, comes and served to you at the table, floating up in the air. And you put the balloon to your mouth and you suck the helium out. And then when you go there for a really special birthday, your friends will sing happy birthday to you in their Minnie Mouse helium balloon and then you eat the taffy and you eat the fruit leather. You can poke it with the needle if you wanna do it that way. And that's apple taffy balloon. And this is the kind of food that you will eat at Alinea. And so it's an extremely upscale restaurant, but when you go, they're not fussy about what fork you use. Most of the food's not served with forks. They don't care about the wine pairings. It's the, the environment is fun and experiential and almost like art. So here, this is when Food and Wine magazine declared Grant Ackett's the best new chef in 2002. And here is when Gourmet magazine said that Alinea was the best restaurant in America in 2006. Those of you who watch some of the food shows or are foodies, you're familiar with the James Beard Foundation? You Maybe you've heard that name before. This is when he got his James Beard Foundation Award for Rising Star Chef Rising Star Chef of the Year in 2003. This is when he got his James Beard Foundation Award um, for Best Chef in 2007. Here's where he got his James Beard Foundation Award as Outstanding Chef in 2008. And another one for Best Cookbook in 2009. And another James Beard Award for Outstanding Service. And a fifth one for Outstanding Restaurant. Michelin awards stars to restaurants, top restaurants. Three-star Michelin rating is the highest rating that any restaurant in the world can get. Alinea got its first three Michelin star rating in 2011, and again in 2013, 14, 15, 16, 17. And finally, the Elite Traveler 100 rates the top restaurants in the world, 100 top restaurants in the world, Alinea was rated the top restaurant in 2011 and 12, 13, and 14, 15, 16, 17, 18. So I feel like I've painted a picture of 
how well the public received what was happening at Alinea and this thing that Grant Ackett's had created. They loved it. We love it. So the restaurant industry is extremely competitive. They say that a thousand restaurants open in New York City a year, 800 of them fold. The margin for profit is very slim in the restaurant industry. It's extremely stressful. And the way that Grant Ackett's would manifest his stress is by grinding his teeth at night. And this is a pretty healthy looking tongue, but I don't know if you can see there on the borders, you might see some teeth imprints, a little bit of teeth imprints. So he started having some issues with his tongue and he went to his dentist and she said, you're grinding your teeth at night. Let me make you a mouth guard. And so she made him a mouth guard. So um, it got better. About six months later, he noticed a hot spot on his tongue again. It was bothering him. And it was a real sensitive spot. Maybe it looked a little something like this. And, but things at Alinea were kicking and things were moving and uh, reservations were filling and food was there made to be, uh, there to be made. And he didn't have time to go and see the dentist again. And so he went to the ER. And he works from 3 p.m. until about 3.30 a.m. when they finish cleaning up the kitchen and the last service is over and everything is put away. So he shows up in the ER at 3.30 or 4 o'clock in the morning and for some pain medicine. They give him some pain medicine and send him on his way. And the spot goes away. And then probably six months later, it comes back and he goes back to the dentist and she gives him a script for amoxicillin and some viscous lidocaine and a chlorhexidine mouth uh, rinse and sends them on his way. And it goes away. And then six months later, it comes back and he's too busy and it gets worse and he can't eat and he starts losing weight and it gets much worse. And now he has to selectively decide what he's gonna say because it's so painful to talk. He's carefully choosing whether or not this is a valuable thing to say because it hurts so much. And he's learned a hack that if he packs the side of his mouth with bubble gum, that it won't hurt as much. It'll kind of buffer his tongue from his teeth and the side of his mouth. So he's using this hack. And then finally he can't take it anymore. And so he goes to the dentist. And at this point it's gotten to where it looks something maybe like this. And the dentist says, this is past me. You need to go to an oral surgeon. And she sends him to an oral surgeon, and the oral surgeon says, we need to take a biopsy of this. He's like, a biopsy? This is a mouth ulcer. Just give me whatever they gave me before. So the oral surgeon takes a biopsy, writes him a prescription for Vicodin, and says, I'll have your results in seven to ten days. And he's like, that's it? He's like, well, yeah, that's, that's the process. And he's like, so I'm not going to know anything for seven to ten days, and I just have to walk around with us trying to, I can't eat, I can't talk. So about day eight or nine, he gets a phone call from the surgeon and the surgeon says, can you come to my office in the morning? And he says, no, I sleep in the mornings. I work until 3.30. I don't get up like normal people do in the mornings. I can't come to your office tomorrow morning. So just tell me over the phone. And the surgeon said, I can't. And Grant, who was a total layperson, knew immediately that was not good that he figured if this was nothing, he would have just said it to me over the phone. So he said, okay, I'll, I'll come to your office. So he says when he presented to the surgeon's office the next morning, he had a feeling that it wasn't good information, but he knew it was confirmed when no one in the office would look him in the eye. He said he was in the exam room and the, the oral surgeon came in with the medical assistant and the nurse and they were all looking at the floor. And the oral surgeon said, you have squamous cell carcinoma. And he's blank look, layperson. He said, you have cancer, it's cancer. And he said, I don't know how bad it is. I don't know to what extent it is. You're gonna have to go to another physician for that. So he referred him to an oncologist. They did more tests, including scans. And this time when he went to the oncologist to get the results of the scans, he took his buddy Nick, because he learned you don't go to the doctor's office by yourself. So he took his buddy Nick, and here comes the oncologist to give him the results of the scans. And the oncologist says, your tongue is fully involved. You have stage four squamous cell carcinoma with METS, 
to the lymph nodes on both sides of your neck. Your tongue will need to be removed. I will need to split your jaw open and do radical dissections of both sides of your neck. And Nick said, hold on, hold on, hold on. He's the best chef in the world. You can't take his tongue. And the surgeon said, or the oncologist said, I don't care who he is, this is a matter of life and death. And so Nick is stunned and sort of fuming. And now Grant speaks up and Grant says, so if I do this surgery, can you rebuild my tongue? And they said, well, yeah, we're gonna take a muscle from your arm or maybe one from your leg and we'll make you something tongue-like, but it's not gonna have any taste buds on it. You're not gonna be able to taste anything. And he said, um, will I be able to speak? And he said, well, you'll be able to do like a series of grunts and moans. And then the oncologist demonstrated the grunts and moans, which both of the men describe as horrific. Um, and then he says, uh, well, will I be able to eat? And he's like, mm, unlikely, you'll probably have to have a peg tube to the world's top chef. And he says, okay, so if I do this surgery, will I live? And he said, well, if you do this surgery, the mortality rate is about 50% at the two year mark. So he's like, you're telling me if I do all of these things that I still only have a 50-50 chance of living. And Grant says he made the decision at that moment that I'll just die. So these two guys, the two owners of the best restaurant in the world did what any two guys would do. They went to a seedy Mexican restaurant and got drunk on a pitcher of margaritas because <laughs> this is horrible news. So over the course of the next few days, they got a second and a third opinion from other top Chicago oncologists who in much gentler and kinder ways told them essentially the exact same thing, that this is a devastating, invasive, stage four and will require radical surgery in the way that, much in the way that was described to you. And so over the next few days, Grant kept saying, when you have, I mean, sorry, Nick kept saying, when you have the surgery, when you have the surgery. And every time he said that, Nick kept thinking, I'm not having the surgery. I'll just die, I'd rather die. I have given up relationships for this passion of mine. It's my life, it's, my, it's who I am. I, I wouldn't be able to taste, I wouldn't be able to eat, I'd just rather be dead. Forget it. Uh, but he didn't verbalize those things to Nick, he just let him think what he was gonna think. So the two of them realized that they needed to do something before this information got out to the public, they wanted to get on top of it. So they knew that they needed to create a press release. They created a press release that went out into the Chicago Tribune. And the press release said, Grant Ackett's chef of Alinea, has uh, stage four squamous cell cancer of the tongue and will be pursuing aggressive treatment, something kind of vague like that. And we will further update you. So as they're preparing this press release and as they send it to the Chicago Tribune, the food and wine editor called Nick. Of course, they're very familiar with him. They have a, a very robust relationship with this food and wine editor. And Nick is talking to him. He said, I just have some follow-up questions for you. And he's like, well, we're not really answering a lot of questions right now, but we'll chat because we're friends. So they have a little chat. And then Nick said, off the record, he said, you know, this is, this is really Shakespearean. It's like, you know, a top chef gets his tongue plucked out. It's like a, as if an artist had his eyes plucked out. This is like a Shakespearean tragedy. Well, this food and wine editor could not resist that sound bite. He just couldn't, even though it was off the record. So the next day, cover of the Chicago Tribune, Shakespearean tragedy, chef gets tongue plucked out, much like artists with eyes plucked out. It's disastrous. But Grant's like, well, I mean, you know, whatever. It is what it is. So um, they're dealing with the fallout of that when Grant gets a call from the University of Chicago Oncology Department. And they say, we want you to come in and let us examine you. And he said, not no, but hell no. I've been through three extremely painful examinations. Every time you touch my tongue or make me stick my tongue out, it is excruciating. And it's demoralizing to have you tell me the same bad news over and over. I don't want to do it a fourth time. I'm not coming. And this is what they said to him. They said, we think about medicine the way you think about food. We push boundaries. We break apart the existing model and we put it back together in a more meaningful way. We do organ sparing treatments. 
Now all of a sudden, Grant's listening. Wait, what do you mean organ-sparing treatments? We're gonna do chemo and radiation first and shrink as much of the tumor as we possibly can. And then once we've completed that, we're gonna reevaluate what's left to see if surgery is even necessary. And Grant's like, you're speaking a lot of medical speak, but it sounds to me like you're saying you're not gonna cut my tongue out. And the doctor's like, that's exactly what I'm saying. He's like, I'll be in your office tomorrow morning. We think about medicine the way you think about food. So this picture I put here because here's young, healthy Grant. He's doing this beautiful dish that he does where he has fall foliage and he lights it on fire and the food is here down in the, in the little piece of art display there. And when it comes to you at the table, it has this essence like it's been uh, cooked at a campfire. So there's like your little nostalgia piece there. And then this is him. You can see the toll that it has taken on him, right? So this is the ad that runs in the Chicago uh, Tribune now, and I'm going to read it to you. It says, when one of the best chefs in the world was diagnosed with tongue cancer, he called our doctors and made a reservation. <laughs> Literally the exact opposite of what happened. But he's now the poster boy for their oncology department with his blessing, of course. Of course, he's happy to be because after a year of treatment under their care, he's cancer free, his tongue intact. He did lose his taste buds because radiation does that for a period of time, but he has such a brilliant catalog of taste in his mind and such a great team around him that he could still create dishes and say, this is what I want it to taste like. Taste this for me and tell me, I'm gonna describe it to you and you tell me if this is what it tastes like. And he still, even during that time where his taste buds were burned from the radiation, uh, created new dishes with the help of his team. But a year after treatment, this 33-year-old never smoker was cancer-free. So we are not oncologists. We don't administer chemotherapy in the ER, not for cancer reasons anyway. Are there any ER lessons that we can learn from this experience? I think so. First of all, we are frequently witness to the delivery of bad news. We have to learn to do it gracefully. There are even occasions where we are the ones that are the deliverers of really bad news. You've got to look them in the eye, minimum. But you've got to learn to deliver bad news gracefully. Second, I will admit that I have been the triage nurse that's like, so you've seen your doctor about this three times, you've been treated for it for a year and a half, and now you're here at 3.30 in the morning. What makes it an emergency today? <laughs> I've been that girl. Um, but sometimes, it really is. But most importantly, most importantly, you have to know your patient and what are the goals of care. Remember the oncologist who said, I don't care who you are, this is a matter of life or death. The tongue has to come out. And the chef said, well, in his mind, well, then I'll just die. Versus the University of Chicago who said, no, 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 we think about medicine like you think about food. Two completely different presentations. Same cancer, same patient. Do we have those patients in our ER? So we can all agree that the ER is not the best place for palliative care to be initiated. But the reality is, oftentimes we're the ones that see these patients, their chronic conditions progressing to the point where they're being readmitted and readmitted or where their symptoms cannot no longer be controlled. We're the gatekeeper. And so we're the ones that make the palliative consult or should be making the palliative consult. So we note that the, the goals of care change from curative to symptom management or quality of life. So with these chronic conditions, uh, when you look at your patient and see that they're readmitting or the symptoms are just too difficult to control, or you realize it wouldn't surprise you if six to 24 months from now, this patient succumbs to their chronic conditions, that's a palliative patient. Not a hospice, but a palliative. And it's appropriate to refer them. So some of the questions that we can ask, what are you hoping for? What are you afraid of? What is quality of life to you? What is important to you right now? What is the meaning of a good death versus a bad death? Is there any type of treatment that you hope to avoid? These are important questions to ask. I think about those darn smokers 
that are in here with their COPD or their lung cancer and they say, I'm not gonna quit. And we put our own values on them, they just don't wanna quit. Let's talk about some blue men. Not these blue men. All right, so we're gonna go from Chicago over to New York City. This is Hudson Terminal. It's September 25th, 1944. It's a Monday. And a police officer gets called to Hudson Terminal. This is a super busy train station. And he gets called because there's an old, dirty, poor, drunk guy crumpled up on the sidewalk. And he's there to shuffle him away, get him up, sober him up, run him off. So he goes over to the little old drunk, crumpled up guy. And he kind of shuffles him with his foot. And when he rolls the drunk guy over, he sees that old boy's tip of his nose is blue. His ears are blue. His lips are blue. And he doesn't look so good. He's like, whoa, hold on now. This is not not a drunk guy. This is something else. And so he calls for an ambulance. Now, in 1944, you're really lucky to be in New York City because very few places had ambulances back then. This was very uh, beginning of ambulance care like that. So you might be getting something that looks like this. So this ambulance comes and takes him uptown to Beekman Hospital to the emergency room. Again, luckier in New York City because most places didn't have emergency rooms. Typically, you had to call the physician to come to your house if you needed emergency care. So um, they take this 82-year-old to Beekman Hospital. And by the time he gets to Beekman Hospital, his entire body is blue. So they roll him in, and the doctor says, hmm, let's start some treatment. And this is what they do to him. They do a gastric lavage. They put him on some oxygen. They order bed rest. And um, they give him some cardiac stimulants. That's what the literature says. I don't know what cardiac stimulants were in 1944, but he got some. And it fixed him. He came up. He did okay. They got him into the hospital. And the physician said, um, hey guys, um, I think he has what? Carbon monoxide poisoning. This is our little drunk guy feeling better. Not good. Not good anymore. A little bit better. I think he has carbon monoxide poisoning. And he said, if he came from Hudson Terminal, which is super, super busy, we better batten down the hatches. We better prepare for a whole lot more patients if there's carbon monoxide going on there. So I'm really worried about this, y'all. And the doctor wasn't disappointed because at 1025, that was about 830 in the morning, at 1025, a second blue man arrived to Beekman Emergency Room. And by 1110, three more. Someone keep a tally for me. At 1120, two more. 1135, and then five minutes later, another. And then by noon, another. So how many is that total? I think that's 10 with our original guy, but it's nine more, right? So we're missing one. So these guys did not come from Hudson Terminal. He was the only one. These other guys came from various cheap hotels and flop houses around town. One was found crumpled up on the sidewalk, a different sidewalk. So they were brought in from all different places around town, not Hudson Terminal. Our 11th guy was found at this flop house. The clerk hadn't seen him all morning, so she went in and checked on him. He was too sick to find to go and ask for help himself. So when she found him, he was super, super sick. She called for help. And this accounts for our 11th blue man. So this is what I mean by a flop house. It's sort of a really inexpensive boarding house. It's communal boarding. And this is where these men lived. All of them ranged in age from 60 to 82. They were all half step away from homeless. Uh, They called them derelicts at the time in the 40s. And they liked to drink. So what are the next steps? Well, the physician notified the Department of Health. The Department of Health sent epidemiologists to the hospital to start investigating. And when the epidemiologists interviewed the men, they found out that all of the men ate breakfast at the Eclipse Cafeteria, which was located at number six Chatham Square, New York City, that morning. 
But the breakfast times ranged from 7 a.m. to 10 a.m. So they were like, do you know how much carbon monoxide would have had to have been floating around that cafeteria for three hours time span of carbon monoxide poisoning? I don't think this is carbon monoxide poisoning, y'all. I don't think I said y'all in our city, but <laughs> get my point. So they're starting to think that this is not what this is. So this is a picture. It's called Working Class Cafeterias. Maybe what the Eclipse Cafe would have looked like. This is from New York City in the 40s. So now some more details emerge as they continue to interview the uh, blue men. And one of our blue men has succumbed. So all of the men report getting sick within 30 minutes of having their breakfast. Ten of the men had oatmeal, a roll, and coffee. The 11th blue man, blue man had just oatmeal. I feel like we need to like, don't don don. <laughs> it's the oatmeal. So the pot and plot thickens. I had to, sorry. Okay, so maybe now we're looking at some food poisoning because we're thinking oatmeal, right? That's the common denominator here. But here's the thing about food poisoning. Usually it's on meat or dairy products or it's some bacteria that has gotten onto the outside of fruit or vegetable. And usually because it's a bacteria, it has a significant incubation time, two to five hours, typically on the five hour end. These guys got sick within 30 minutes. Normally it presents with diarrhea and vomiting. Only two of our blue men had that. And I don't know food poisoning that causes blueness. So, hmm. So now our epidemiologists and our physicians were thinking maybe it was drugs, but they're like, but these guys aren't, they're drinkers. They're not, they're boozers. They're not, they're not that kind of guys. So now they're going to go investigate at the Eclipse cafeteria. So what they find at the Eclipse cafeteria is that the doors have been chained and padlocked for public safety, right? But they also find that you can get a full meal there for 15 cents. And for your 15 cents, you might get some roaches, you might get some flies, you might get some really filthy silverware. There were clogged up sinks, there were grimy floors and walls. They said there was detritus and trash under the countertops, under the tables. In all, they had 15 Department of Health infractions, but none of them that would have led to people turning blue or even getting sick really. So their next step was to look at the oatmeal specifically. So they called in the cooks and the busboys, the servers, uh, the staff, and interview them. So they asked the cook, like, how did you make this oatmeal? What's going on with the oatmeal? Tell me about the oatmeal. He said, yeah, I make a big pot of it. It makes 125 servings. And when I make it, I use five pounds of oatmeal from this bag. I use four gallons of city tap water. And I use a handful of salt from this can sitting right up here on the top of the stove. And I said, OK. And the can gets refilled from that um, bag of of salt right over there. And so the epidemiologists are looking and they see the oatmeal and they see the tap water and they see the can of salt up here. And the bag of salt sitting over here is sitting right next to a bag. Saltpeter. Oh, yeah. So in the 40s, this is war era, saltpeter was approved temporarily to be used for curing meats. Um, not for oatmeal, but it looks like, and smells like, and tastes just like salt. And someone had taken a can that normally has salt and refilled it from the wrong bucket. So when he grabbed what he thought was a handful of salt to put in the oatmeal, what he mistakenly had grabbed was a handful of saltpeter. Now this bag says potassium nitrate, it's actually sodium nitrate, Sodium nitrate is safe in foods as long as it is cooked off. It like in the meats, the jerkies, the uh, ham, stuff like that. It's not intended to go in foods like oatmeal. So we're almost there. What's the problem? How many servings does that pot make? How many blue people do we have? 
What about 114? So why is it that 125 people ate oatmeal with saltpeter in it, but only 11 of them got sick? Mm. Mm. So, oh, oh, ooh, ooh, so, oh, so warm. Okay, so let's go through the ER lessons that we've learned and it will solve our mystery. So one of the first ER lessons that I learned is this mass casualty situation. So the physician who got the first blue man said, something is weird about this dude. Carbon monoxide poisoning, poisoning, Hudson Terminal, this is about to be bad. He was wrong on both counts, but he was right that something was weird and he got a bunch of patients, right? So it doesn't matter if you get it exactly right. If you suspect something weird is going on, follow up. We talk about following our gut, right? That doctor knew something was off. His guesses weren't quite right, but he knew he needed to batten down the hatches because something weird was coming. I love this example of epidemiology because what happened was they started out like this with the interviews of the guys. They found the Eclipse cafeteria. They found the oatmeal. They found the bucket. Then they saw Peter. And we're so close. Almost there. But that's what happens with epidemiology. You get closer and closer until you find your... Okay, so my girl over here is talking about electrolytes and chronic alcoholism. And the electrolyte specifically that we want to focus in on is hyponatremia. It has to do with salt. And so if you have low salt levels, you get your bowl of oatmeal, you might think it's not salty enough. So you might take a salt shaker from the table and you might add more salt to it. And so when they did that, what the epidemiologists did is they had the cook recreate the pot of oatmeal with the salt heater. They took a bowl and they measured it. It had 2.5 grains of salt heater in it. The toxic level is three grains. So everyone that ate just a bowl of oatmeal was in the safe range. But if you picked up a, a, a shaker from the table and added salt to it, because you're a chronic alcoholic who maybe lacks some salt and wants some more, you can tip it over to the three grain and turn yourself blue. So they took the 17 salt shakers on the table and found one that had been refilled inadvertently with the salt meter. So it was on one table, the fellas probably sat at the one table, and that's how they got enough to tip them over and turn them blue. Like a good epidemiologist. So this is what happened to them. They had met hemoglobinemia. That's why they were blue. You are very unlikely in your ER career to ever encounter sodium nitrate poisoning causing met hemoglobinemia. But there are lots of things that cause methemoglobinemia, things that we give to patients all the time. So what this condition is, it's where a chemical interferes with fer ferrous, interferes with the enzyme that turns ferrous into iron that allows the oxygen to pop off the red blood cell and go into the tissues. So the oxygen is there, it's ready on the red blood cell, but it can't go into the tissues. So what does that mean for your pulse ox? It's, it's gonna work, but it's gonna be pulse. It'll say 100 or 98 or whatever, and they'll be just as blue. So pulse ox is no good. So what will you use? ABGs, that's right. So what some of the um, things that you might see that we see every day, and we give patients every day, for acquired methemoglobinemia, nitroglycerin, nitroprusside, sulfur drugs, Daxone, which is an antibiotic that's given for leprosy and also PCP pneumonia, benzocaine and lidocaine, benzocaine and over-the-counter gum rub for infants with, that are teething, they can overdose it and get methemoglobinemia. Reglan, we give that out if it's water. Uh, other environmental things, factors that can, um, can cause it as well. 
So the treatment for it, I heard someone talk about it earlier, is methylene blue. That's right, methylene blue. If your patient is refractory to methylene blue, which some of the extreme cases will be, they can do exchange transfusions, dialysis, or hyperbarics. So you're gonna suspect this when your patient comes in, if they are fair-skinned, they're looking blue. Darker-skinned patients, their tongue or their lips may be blue. And the telltale sign is when you draw their blood, it looks like chocolate. Very brown color. Uh, you should also know that there is a, a genetic or a congenital methemoglobinemia. That is when uh, both parental sides have the recessive gene and it comes together and it's an inborn. Methylene blue will not work on those people. It's extremely rare. You might have heard of the Fugate family in Hazard, Kentucky. In the 1800s, there was a whole gene pool there of blue people. There was also a genetic gene pool in Ireland of blue people. Those were congenital methemoglobinemia people. So that's your blue men. Okay, let's go to um, Tennessee in 1912. Maybe 1913, maybe 1914, we're not exactly sure. So a baby was born, premature, teensy tiny baby, three and a half pounds. And in 1912 or 13 or 14, we're gonna say 13 for ease, there wasn't much that we could offer a tiny preterm baby. We didn't have isolates, we didn't have NICUs, we didn't have garbage feeding, we didn't have any of that stuff. So what we had was old wives' tales. And some of those old wives' tales were to lay the baby on cotton bowls. Lay the baby on cotton bowls soaked in olive oil. Rub the baby down with olive oil. Put the baby in the bottom drawer of the dresser instead of a crib or bassinet. Put the baby in sports. It will help them grow big and strong. So when our baby was born at just three and a half pounds, our baby Vernon, our baby's parents said, we like that, we like that idea. And they decided as the baby grew up on sports. And they knew exactly what sport it was going to be because at the time, they lived next door to Daddy Vance. And Daddy Vance was a minor league baseball player who was famous for his drop pitch. We would call it a slider today. But a drop pitch is this really wicked pitch that comes at you at just the perfect right, cross the numbers level, and then the last minute it drops down like this. Very hard to defend against. And that was what Dazzy Vance was famous for. So when he was living next door to our little family, he was a minor league player, but he later went on to be uh, play for five Major League Baseball teams and become a Baseball Hall of Famer. But at this time, he's in the minors. So when our little Vern was just four years old, three or four or five, Daddy was teaching baseball. And our little athlete was picked up on it really quickly and did start to grow big and strong and got this dang drop ball, this slider, was that and continued to pursue baseball and get better and better. And at age 16, our tall, strong baseball player, the parents advocated and got our little athlete into a baseball high school in Atlanta, Georgia, like an athletic specialty high school in Atlanta, Georgia. And again, our ball player was so, so good that at age 17, Vern caught the eye of the manager of the Chattanooga Lookouts, which is a double A minor league team. And Vern was signed at age 17 to play with them as a pitcher. Our 17 year old, once three and a half pound creamy, is now playing the minors. And so every year, the New York Yankees would go down to Florida for spring training. And on their way back up the East Coast, they would stop in Chattanooga and do an exhibition game. This was a tradition that they would do. And so on April 1st, they were coming through to do their exhibition game with the Chattanooga Lookouts. But it rained. So the game had to be rescheduled to April 2nd. So on April the 2nd, here we go. 
1931, we're playing baseball. And this is what we mean when we say murderer's row. This is what the nickname of this lineup is called. So Earl Combs comes up to bat, and he clobbers a double. The next player up is not the second guy. It was actually Larry Lynn. He slapped a single, and Combs scores from second. So it's now Yankees one, look out zero. The manager stops the game. He goes to the mound, he takes the ball from the pitcher. Guess who gets to get? Our little creepy. Our little burn is going to the mound. And guess who's up next? So our tiny little baby is going up on the mound to face Babe Ruth. Our baby is a lefty. And Babe Ruth and Lou Gehrig are also lefties, which I'm not super savvy about baseball, but apparently that's a big advantage. So here comes Babe Ruth up to bat. Burns on the mound. The first pitch sails high for ball one. Maybe Burns a little nervous. Second pitch, Babe swings and whiffs it. Strike one. Third pitch, Feel the breeze because the Sultan of Swat just went straight to Fourth pitch, Babe stood and watched it for a called third strike and struck out. And then the Bambino kicks the dirt, calls the umpire some really dirty names, throws the bat, and walks back to the dugout. And our little 17-year-old just struck out Babe. But work is not done because here comes Lou Gehrig, the Iron Horse, up to bat. This is the cleanup hitter for the New York Yankees. He swings and misses three consecutive pitches, and the Iron Horse sits down. And 4,000 people in the stands go crazy because our skinny little 17-year-old just struck out Babe Ruth and Lou Gehrig. Y'all, she did it. Because Vern doesn't go by Vern. Vern is Jackie. And Jackie is a girl. So here's what Jackie got for striking out two of the greatest baseball players of that time and of all time. The headline the next morning said, Girl Pitcher Fans Ruth and Garrett. And then the comments were, what's next, a sword swallower and train seals? Times in the South are not only tough, but they're getting silly. What is Chattanooga trying to do, burlesque the game? The curves won't be all on the ball. She has a swell, uh, she has a swell change of pace and swings a mean lipstick. Vern Beatrice Jackie Mitchell, after she struck out Babe Ruth and Lou Gehrig, got her contract for Chattanooga Lookout Cancer. And she had to leave the minor leagues, and she ended up playing for a um, religious-type baseball team, traveled around the United States for a few years, and then she quit baseball altogether. Now, when you hear about this story and you ask baseball historians, there are two schools of thought on this. The game was an exhibition game played every year between the Yankees and the Lookouts, and it was originally scheduled for April 1st, April Fool's Day. So there are half of the baseball historians who say it was a setup that Babe Ruth and Lou Gehrig were meant to strike out to a girl on purpose. The other half of this, and of course Babe Ruth said that, yeah, just strike out, but that's what you would say, you just got to strike out that said to a girl. And then there are the other half of the historians who say, no, absolutely not. This was the real deal. And it just depends on which side of the fence you went on and who you talked to. This is what Jackie herself said at the end of her life. Why, hell, they were trying. Damn right. Hell, better hitters than them couldn't hit me. Why should they have been any different? And that's what she believed until the day she died. That's what I will believe until the day I die. 
So are there some ER lessons that we can learn from this story? I think so. First of all, baseball's good PTOT. This old wives' tale that said, put your baby in sports. It will help them to grow big and strong. What are some of the issues with preemies? Strength, coordination, right? There was no such thing as physical therapy or occupational therapy in 1913 or 1916. They were just beginning to organize themselves into a formal association and industry. So this old wives' tale proved to be true. Sports probably was a really good thing for a three-year-old former preemie. Sometimes finesse beats strength. Some lessons about gender equality. I think we've hit that pretty, pretty strong. If you've taken the new EMPC, there's a really large focus in there about parents, caregivers being the experts on their own children. There's some really cool interviews and vignettes where they talk to parents whose children have rare conditions or chronic conditions, and how as ER nurses, when they come in with some kind of acute issue, we can partner with them to care for their children. The EMPC book says caregivers are expert resources and can give insight into the child's baseline behavior, neurological status, abilities, and overall health. And that's in the chapter called Children with Special Health Care Needs. And I think that when Jackie's parents said, let's get our neighbor to teach, him, teach her baseball. And this was not a sport for girls. And when she was good at it and they continued to pursue it in a time where it was not intended for girls. And can you imagine some of the, I mean, I, this is me all fantasizing and fictionalizing, it's not in any of the literature, but imagine some of the conversations and the advocacy that they probably had to have to get her into that high school. Imagine some of the things, if, if the quotes from the newspapers are any example, imagine some of the comments that were made probably by her teammates or her classmates or even administrators that they had to listen to or talk to her about, and they were advocating for her special needs. So I definitely think that that is the biggest lesson that can be learned from her.